Welcome to the Family Tree Magazine Podcast, the show from America's number one genealogy magazine. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. In this September 2012 episode of the podcast, we're going to be focusing on diagnostic genealogy. And I've got some great tips, tools, and websites for you to help you figure out how to solve your family history challenges. First, we're going to stop by the Genealogy Insider blog and talk with managing editor Diane Haddad about what's new in the world of genealogy. And then in our top tips segment, Sharon DiBartolo Carmack will be here to help us diagnose some of the common issues that plague our research by providing tips from her article called Preventative Medicine. Then in our 101 Best Websites segment, we will turn to the world of science for answers, specifically using DNA. And I've got an expert in the field to talk about it. Bennett Greenspan is here. He's the president and founder of FamilyTreeDNA.com. Then in the Family Tree University Crash Course segment, Family Tree Magazine instructor Charlotte Bocage will give us some tips for citing our sources. And those come from her Family Tree University class called Source Documentation 101. And finally, we'll check in at the publisher's desk with Allison Dolan. She's the publisher of Family Tree Magazine, and she's got some excellent diagnostic resources for us. Well, there's a lot to cover, so let's get to it. Our first stop is the Genealogy News with Diane Haddad. We're going to kick off this episode with the news from the blogosphere, and here to give us the scoop is the Genealogy Insider blogger, Diane Haddad. Hi, Diane. Hi, Lisa. Well, Diane, I know that you are just back from the Federation of Genealogical Societies Conference that was held this year in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, what were some of the highlights this year? Well, it was, we always love going to conferences and talking with readers and hearing um, what kinds of things they're working on and how they're using the magazine and what they find interesting about it. So, um, so that's usually the highlight of the conference for me. I know sometimes for me, when I go to a conference, you you have things on your mind. Oh, I want to get this, you know, some, try to find somebody who mm-hmm. knows about this thing that I'm working on. Um, how would you suggest that somebody use their time at a conference when you have all of these knowledgeable people surrounding you? I actually had a great idea that one of our readers was um, who visited our booth was saying that she does. She picks a problem or two for every time she's going to go to a conference or a workshop, and she focuses on that. She looks through the syllabus and through the list of exhibitors to see who is at this conference who I can find and go to their class or walk up to their booth and ask them um, what they think about this problem. And I just thought that was a great idea. Um, There are so many experts who teach the classes at these conferences, and genealogy societies come and um, display their products in the exhibit hall, and, you know, if you you have, say, a question for Ancestry.com, how do I find this record in your database? They have a booth there, Family Search, Find My Past, like other genealogy sites and services like that where people can actually show you how their product works. Or, um, you know, if it's a society, they know the quirks and the ins and outs of the records in that particular area. Exactly. And I know even when I speak at conferences, one of the things I encourage the audience to do is I say, I want to see you guys while you're waiting for class to start. 
talking to each other. Mm-hmm. You know, you never know who's sitting right next yeah. to you who yeah. may have that little nugget that you need. And that's one of the best things about conferences and workshops and society meetings is that you get to network with other genealogists. And people love answering questions and talking about what they yeah. know. So just don't be shy about, you know, you want to be specific and succinct because everyone's busy, but don't be shy about walking up to someone and asking your question. Right. And I noticed I was looking through um, the Genealogy Insider blog. You had a great blog post there about uh, the genealogy heaven Mm -hmm. that Birmingham Public Library is. Um, Give us kind of a a quick rundown of some of the most current news and things that we'll find there on the Genealogy Insider blog. Sure. Um, Well, the library there in um, Birmingham, it's the Lynn Henley Research Center, is where their genealogy and history materials are. It was gorgeous. And so I went in and I took some pictures. And I don't have family family in the area, but I looked around at the other southern materials because I did have family that told around the south for a while. So Mm -hmm. um, they have um, all kinds of local records. They have records from the city archives um, and then a a good collection of um, records from elsewhere in the south. So, So it's always great to go look at the local resources when you go to a conference. Um, Another interesting news bit that we heard is that FGS, the Federation of Genealogical Societies, has a new website, so they have resources there for um, people who are officers in genealogy societies. Um, they, NGS, which is another large genealogy organization, has um, agreed with with Funium, which is the creator of that Facebook game Family Village that a lot of people are playing. NGS is going to provide educational materials to the players of this Facebook game. So that's a way that um, that they're hoping and you know, everybody's hoping to bring more people into genealogy and um, kind of educate them about how it works and how research works. Yeah. So that was an interesting little tidbit there. And then um, findmypast.com, which was a sponsor of the conference this year, is working with uh, geneal- local genealogical societies to help them put records online. And when people go to Find My Past and look at these records, the societies will get um, some kind of um, remuneration for that. So it's a way for societies to earn money and to show the public what they have. Oh, that's a great partnership. Yeah. And I know that uh, over at what you said on Family Search that they've wrapped up the 1940 census. Yes, that was very exciting yeah. too. Their census index is online, so that's Family Search has a complete census index now that's going to be free permanently. Ancestry.com has theirs; it's going to be free through th- 2013, and it's great for people to have both indexes they can search because there there are going to be differences. So you know, if you you, you try both, you know, if you're having trouble finding somebody. Because everything's done just a little bit different. Everybody's got their different take on it. Uh Um, Great. I'm going to have links to all of the articles that uh, give you more of the details on all of these different news items that uh, Diane's just told us about. They'll be in the show notes for this episode. And uh, you've been one busy lady, but we look forward to talking to you next month, too. Same here. family tree is prone to falling victim to disease records. Well, in this top tip segment, Sharon DiBartolo Carmack, the family tree doctor is in the house and she's going to give us some tips for recognizing sick sources, which can really help you prevent them from infecting your research. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Sharon. 
<laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Sharon, this episode is all about focusing on what I call diagnostic genealogy and your article called Preventative Medicine. It's in the October, November issue of the magazine, and it's chock full of great prescriptions. Now, really, your career has been all about diagnosing diseased family trees, hasn't it? Well, I don't know that my whole career has been about that, but as I've taken on client work for the past 20 or so years and have written family histories, that's when you really start to see there are are problems, serious problems mm-hmm. in people's family family trees, and and that they're just really sick and yeah. really need some help. Well, I imagine as you've done research for people and looked over different sources themselves, you're probably constantly coming across these problem areas, and you see some uh, some commonalities in the problems that kind of creep up over time. Yes, definitely. You know, as far as family trees themselves go, um, you know, I'm constantly seeing kids that are born, you know, when the mom's too old to be having babies or or uh, parents that are marrying at the age of six or seven or, you know, the chronology just doesn't work. And if people would just stop and do the math and look at, okay, do these dates all make sense, you know, this child and this child cannot be born three months apart. (laughs) There has to be more time there. Um, You know, if people would just stop and and if they did nothing else before they put a family tree online, um, that would solve half of our problems. Um, So many of the problems are are either skip generations or problems with chronology in the family trees themselves. But then we also have the problems with... um, Uh, some records that can also have some diseases. Right. Sounds like, and sometimes we just need to slow down a little bit and look at the logic or the illogic of it. Um, Exactly. How do you recommend that genealogists can go about being more analytical in their family history research? Well, I think one of the first things... um, along with double-checking those dates and making sure the chronology makes sense, is to learn something about the records. Mm -hmm. It's really difficult to utilize the information in the records if you don't understand why that record was created, who it was created for, um, the whole purpose behind the record, almost like putting your ancestors into a historical context, you have to put the records into a historical context. Um, why were these records created, and what possible problems can these records have? You know, for example, let's just take census records, because everybody uses census records. Right. Of course, we know that they were taken to enumerate the population, and the reason we needed to know the numbers of the population were so we knew how many, um, in the early times, uh, how many men were going to come of age who could be of military age, and for various different uh, reasons, you know, how many immigrants were coming to the country, so we could say, okay, we've got too many of this group, and you know, and we could put quotas and that kind of thing. But we also have to stop and think, how was this census compiled? Um, I recently uh, was reading a, a family history where someone sa- said, um, and the census clerk wrote down this information, and I thought, well, wait a minute, it's not a census clerk. It's somebody in the community, just like today, who is taking on temporary work and do and becoming a census taker. Right. And if you 
research the person who's taking the census, and their name is always, at least for the later census, is 1850 forward, uh, the census taker's name is at the top of the page. If you research that person, that's someone who's usually either within the same community or the same township or a neighboring township. Um, these were their neighbors. They weren't mm-hmm. officials in the sense that this was not their full-time job. Um, and then the other thing about censuses is we have to stop and think who supplied that information, and we can't answer that question because we don't. That's not information that's given to us on the census. Mm-hmm. So it could be the husband, it could be the wife, it could be an older child, it could be a neighbor. Um, it, you know, we don't know who supplied the information, and so that's why we see oftentimes a lot of discrepancy from one census to the next, as well as the fact that there's space. 10 years apart. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it makes me think about just the human body, how water can be a very good thing for you, but too much water can kill you. Exactly. And so you kind of have to understand the properties of water and the basics of um, approach to how to use it safely in order to benefit from it. And you're really talking about understanding the records more completely, more than just the one we're looking for, but the record group itself so we can use it better. <laughs> exactly. And I think that's where a lot of genealogists um, run into some problems with analyzing um, their family trees and their information is they aren't analyzing the record properly because they don't uh, either know or haven't taken the time to learn the history of the record and what pitfalls the record itself may contain. I know you have so many really great, kind of very logical ideas, but ones that I think sometimes we do kind of forget about in terms of diagnosing some of these um, errors that are commonly creeping in. What are a couple of other tips that you might have here from the the article that we can use right away? Again, each record can be looked at with, okay, what is it telling you, what is it not telling you, and why is it not telling you that information? Death certificates are another record that are commonly um, not um, misanalyzed, but we don't really think about where that information came from. The information about the death itself is usually, but not always, 100% accurate. The doctor may not have witnessed the death, and there weren't the diagnostic tests back in the 19th century that we have today. So they're basing the cause of death on symptoms. And we all know that you know, there are three or four diseases that can have the same symptoms. Right. And how and how we diagnose them today is through advanced medical tests, x-rays, blood tests, and that kind of thing. Well, they didn't have that back then. So we can't rely that the cause of death is 100% accurate on a 19th century record um, simply because of that. But yet, sometimes we, we fall into that trap. And, mm-hmm. and we, you know, if we're looking at our family history from a medical perspective and doing a family medical history, we may fall into the trap of, gosh, look at all the heart disease in my family. Well, that may be true, but, you know, somebody could have died from a stroke as easily as a heart attack, but they presented with symptoms of a heart attack. Mm-hmm. So we don't know. And the same, uh, the other thing that applies to death certificate 
death certificates, of course, is there's also the secondhand information that's supplied by hopefully someone in the family, um, the deceased date of birth, um, you know, how long they'd been in the country, that, that kind of information, the parents' names. That did not come from the deceased himself. Um, it may have by way of this other person, but we don't know that either. So, again, just stop and look at not just what the record's telling you, but what it's not telling you and what is the context of the record. So we have um, um, that with death certificates. Um, other records that can cause problems are newspapers. Um, even today, people are misquoted. Um, right. If things are things are slanted toward a political slant, um, things are are elaborated upon um, for drama. And in the 19th century, that was people's entertainment was the newspapers. Mm-hmm. They didn't have radio, they didn't have television, they didn't have Facebook, they didn't have any of this stuff. (laughs) They got their news from the local newspaper, and boy, you know, if you, you know, you wanted to read about the murders and all the crime in great detail. And so the newspapers of the 19th century, because of that, because they are playing to their readership, may be uh, more colorful than we might um, write the story today. Um, so again, those those are some areas that you just really have to look at it and think. Okay, it, how is how is this record affecting my family? How mm-hmm. how is it affecting my analysis and my research? And you know, all of those different record groups um, bring data that can be recorded at different times. I, I know in the article you talked about a death date. And a death date, you might read about it in an article 10 years later. You know, you might see a birth in the age of a person in three different censuses. And if there's a lot of discrepancy, you kind of pointed the, the reader to uh, head to the one that's closest to the time that the event took place. And I think that's just a great kind of rule of thumb for all of these types of records. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, mistakes are made. I also talked in the article about um, baptisms that occurred before birth. Well, baptisms in utero are extremely rare. (laughs) They have (laughs) happened, but they're extremely rare. Um, But more likely, it's either uh, a mistake, the minister reversed the dates and made a mistake, or there are instances where um, the family had to pay a fee for late registration. And so they fudged the the birth date. And when they did that, um, that threw the baptism date. (laughs) And so there can be there can be logical explanations for why we find discrepancies or errors. In the article, I had talked about the age discrepancies in the censuses. We need to look at what the census day was. All of the censuses um, were taken, the official census day started on different dates for different censuses. So, for example, for one census, the census date may have started April 1st. For another, it was June 1st. For another, it was January 1st. Well, that can throw the age off for people if their birthdays are falling in that time period. So... Again, the the important thing is to research the record, not just your ancestors, but research the record and know something about the record. Right. Well, you make a great case 
for the fact that a, a good dose of preventative medicine can go a long way to keeping our family trees really happy and healthy. Now, if you'd like to learn more about how to diagnose problems, like Sharon has been sharing with us here on the show, uh, go and check out her article. It's called Preventative Medicine. It's in the October-November 2012 issue of Family Tree Magazine. Thanks so much, Sharon. Thank you. One of the newest genealogical tools that can help you validate or disprove research, of course, is DNA testing. And joining me today in the 101 Best Website segment is Bennett Greenspan. He is the president and founder of Family Tree DNA. Hi, Bennett. Hello, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, thanks for joining me. You know, DNA is always a hot topic these days. People really, I think, still want to learn more about it and understand how it works. I was hoping that maybe you could start us off by giving us um, maybe a case study and a real world example, maybe of how one of your customers was able to prove or debunk research that they've previously done as a result of their DNA testing. Well, Lisa, I can give you many case studies, but the first one I'm going to start with is me. I'm a believer that when you evangelize for something like I evangelize for genetic genealogy, you should be able to show that you're not just on the outside looking in, but you're on the inside along with all the other genealogists. And so I can tell you that in 1999, I was working on the genealogy of my mother's mother's father. And after I had done that genealogy of all of the relatives in the United States, I entered that name into a database on the Internet, and I found someone searching for the same last name. However, they lived in Argentina, and we were not able to find a piece of paper to prove that we were related. So I started thinking about my problem, and I realized that molecular biology perhaps could act in lieu of the paper trail. And so I ended up sending a DNA test kit to a cousin of mine in California, and a potential relative in Argentina with the intention to see whether their DNA sample on the direct mail line matched identically, which would prove that they were related, or if they didn't match at all, which would then purport that the reason that they had the same name was something like a lazy tax collector assigning surnames (laughs) in the ancestral village, Uh, or something like that. And when I received the results in the early part of the year 2000, I knew that every serious genealogist in the world was going to be interested in using molecular biology when the paper trail runs cold. Interestingly, we had a case a few months ago where a person took one of our DNA tests. It was our autosomal DNA test, which is the kind of DNA that someone gets from mom and dad. And they came back in the database as being half-siblings. Well, the person who wrote me the email on this knew that her mother had gone to a sperm fertility clinic for artificial insemination. Knowing that, she presumed that that was the same 
case for her half-brother, and that's the way she wrote the letter. And the half-brother wrote back and said, indeed, my mother also went to a sperm fertility clinic, and they were able to confirm that they went to the same sperm fertility clinic and each of those two mothers had requested a sample which turned out to be the same individual male. Right. Oh, see, and then there's that that proof that we're all looking for that tells us very definitively. And I think you make a really good point, particularly in your first story, that for genealogists, this is really a combination of the research and the tree coming together with the DNA uh, now, in your second story, of course, the DNA could kind of stand alone in, in answering that question, but that idea of how do we, because this is the question I get from people often, is just how do we, you know, connect it with our genealogy, and it's really knowing the tree, having the, the clues leading to people, and having the DNA really prove it out. So a genealogist who's listening to this is thinking, ah, okay, maybe this really could fit into my research. How can they best make use of the data on Family Tree DNA's website? Is it mostly useful to people who've already had their DNA tested, or is it good if you're just starting right out of the gate? Well, first of all, our databases are private, they're confidential, they're password protected, and they're very well secured over the Internet. For that reason, if someone wants to compare along any of the three possible tests that we offer, the Y chromosome, the mitochondria, and the autosomal, they need to order one of those tests. And then they'll be placed in our database, and we make comparisons against an individual and our entire database. And what we do is we bring you back with a list of people who share DNA with you, either along the male line, the female line, or the recombinant or autosomal DNA. Mm -hmm. And then we have prediction tools which give you an estimate of how long ago you and that other individual likely shared a common ancestor. And of course, the value for that is that we genealogists are amateur historians. We're historians of our own family, and most of us know quite a bit about any particular of our lines. And so when you put DNA together with what you know from your genealogy, in almost all cases, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Mm -hmm. If you think of genetic genealogy as a genealogical authentication and validation system, you'll really be in the right ballpark. In other words, we're not trying to uproot traditional paper trail genealogy one bit. We're there when someone runs into a roadblock, and we've all run into paper trail roadblocks, where our ancestors' tracks have been covered by the sands of time, either because of a fire or a flood or because they were running from something in the old country, and they really didn't want people in the old country to have such an easy trail or easy opportunity to track them down in the new country. And so sometimes 
will find name changes that are slight name changes. Sometimes they're substantial uh, name changes or other types of methods that our ancestors have used to obscure their past. But DNA doesn't lie. Uh, you know, we say around here, paper accepts anything, but the DNA results are the DNA results. And so for many, many people, it has helped clear up mysteries where they couldn't find a piece of paper to tie two things together, and the DNA acts in effect as a surrogate to replace the need for that paper trail because it provides another piece of corroborating evidence. And what an exciting tool. It becomes part of our arsenal of research tools. Now, you, you mentioned these searchable databases. When we get to the website, do you have uh, tips for us as far as using it? And what are some of the differences? Do we have to go into the different databases? Or do you take care of that and run it through everything once the test is done? Once someone's results are back, we send the individual an email telling them that they should come to their personal page, which we create and sits behind their user ID and password. And let's take an example where, uh, where a male has done a test. Uh, when he comes to his personal page, first of all, there's a 30-page ebook that we've written, which explains how each of the various test processes work. There's also a tutorial on the page so that someone will get an idea of how we've laid out uh, the various searchable tools for them. But generally, most people are going to click on the link that says My Matches. And so when someone does that, uh, a comparison is made between their results and our entire database will provide the names and the email addresses of all of your relevant matches. We also provide a listing of the country or countries that those people claim to have come from. And then we also provide you with, the, with something that's called a haplogroup. And I apologize for using a scientific term, Lisa, but haplogroup just means branch of the tree of mankind. You know, all of us are descendants of a man and a woman who lived in Africa 80 or 100 or 120,000 years ago. And so as time has gone on, there have been mutations which have taken place in our DNA, and we follow those mutations to various branches of the tree. So if I test someone and they're the branch of the tree that they come from is, let's say, for example, I1. I1 is typically found in Scandinavia. However, if I find that individual with an I1 signature in Scotland or in Ireland or in England, the first thing I think of is a Viking who settled down in, in what is today known as the, uh, as the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. uh, by the same token, if a person is trying to prove that their mother's 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 mother was Native American, if they take our mtDNA test and if their results come back in branch of the tree known as A, B, C, or D, those are Native American 
lineages and Native American branches. And so with a simple DNA test, someone can determine yes or no in a very binary fashion whether their mother's mother's mother was sub-Saharan African or from the Middle East or Native American. And so many of our customers are interested in their genealogy, but they're also interested in their personal anthropology. And our tests provide answers to both of those questions. Well, for those of you who've been listening in, if you've been looking for a new diagnostic tool, perhaps it's time to consider DNA testing. And I want to thank you, Bennett, for helping us better understand what's available. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Lisa. And we at Family Tree DNA are always looking forward to do whatever we can to help the genetic genealogy community. So people should be, you know, very open to, you know, call us or email us and ask any question they want on this subject. Wonderful. Give us your website address again so that we can find you. Sure. The The website address is www.familytreedna.com and anyone who has any questions can email us at info at familytreedna.com and we'll be happy to look at your question and to advise you on what DNA can or can't do to help solve your question. Ah, Perfect. Thank you, Bennett. Thank you very much. In today's Family Tree University Crash Course segment, I've invited Charlotte Bocage, who's the instructor of the Source Documentation 101 course, to talk about how you can avoid a lot of errors and diagnose research issues through properly cited sources. Welcome to the show, Charlotte. Thank you, Lisa Louise. How are you? I'm doing great. And um, looking forward to talking about this with you because it's such a critical issue. It's the foundation of, I think, of all we do in our genealogy research. You know, when somebody first gets started in genealogy and they, and they get really excited because they're starting to find records, and then they realize, ah, somebody tells them, you need to cite your sources, and it starts to sound like a drag. But, of course, you and I both know it's absolutely critical to their long-term success. So I was hoping that you could kind of give our listeners your, your best elevator speech argument for how citing sources saves time and how it will help them be a better genealogist. Well, citing your sources uh, saves you time because... It helps you to locate exactly what sources are better than other sources. So, meaning that um, if you find a birth certificate in a Bible, but the Bible has several different signatures in it, and you find a birth certificate coming from a vital records office, then you're wondering which source would be better, the birth certificate in the, I mean, the birth information in the Bible or the birth certificate coming from the vital records office. Well, that would be easy because the birth certificate in the vital records office is probably the right one that you would choose. However, you have to give some credence to the birth information coming from the Bible because it has been written in several different hands. And therefore, it could be that the information in the Bible is correct, uh, 
that you uh, would need to further back up that information that you have, especially if it's two different dates. You would have to back it up with uh, another document that would prove one or the other. We might be finding these sources at different times. So if we if we cite the first one that we find, and the next one comes along six months later, we can go back and, and refresh our memory because we're not going to remember the specific details about where these things came from. So that's what you're talking about, right? It's really diagnosing what's primary, what's secondary, what seems to have a little more credence to it, have that help us make our determination on the accuracy. Exactly. Because the information can be found in various sources. You can find birth, marriage, death, baptismal information coming from various sources. And you have to put uh, different... Uh, weight is a is not the word I'm looking for, but that's about the closest as I can get on what you find. And you need to document your source so that you can give the proper validity to the information that you find. Because if you don't do that, then um, it's nothing but a fairy tale exactly. if you don't document your sources. Exactly. And I, I find too, and I encourage uh, my listeners all the time to go back and revisit sources. And again, the only way to be able to go back and revisit them with your newly, you know, continually educated eye is to have a good record of where you got them. And yeah, and be able to go back and review them. Now, one of the types of records, or not really records, but information that we're, we're finding more often online are family trees. And, of course, a lot of people pull their hair out because many of them are not properly sourced. But if they are, and and inevitably, we are going to see some discrepancies between my tree, your tree, their tree, you know, all the different trees that are out there. Maybe talk to us a little bit about how we can troubleshoot some of those errors, again, relying on the source citations. If you're going to troubleshoot something on the family tree, then I would suggest that you start from the beginning yourself because for me family trees online are just suggestions as to uh, what could be yes so I have a client that I'm working on now and the daughter got all of the information about their family which is over 2,000 people from online sources Mm. And so what I'm doing now is using the dates and places and names that she provided as a guideline to find the information and verify uh, the family trees that she has provided me with. And um, I, we're going to write a book about these, fam- these four different families, but in the meantime, my database has a disclaimer saying that uh, none of these dates and places have been verified until they have been sourced. Mm -hmm. So don't believe anything here until it's been sourced. And so slowly I've been going through the process of sourcing all of those documents, first by checking the census records, and that leads me to vital records. 
Yeah. And you used a, a key word, I think, that I'd love to reinforce for everybody listening, which is it's a clue. It's not a source. It's not a primary or a secondary. It's really a clue, uh, maybe a little bread trail, breadcrumb trail. Um, like Hansel and Gretel. Yeah, exactly. But That's all it is. We really don't incorporate it and call it the truth or, you know, accurate until we track it down ourselves, source it. And I think you, you really need to look at that document yourself. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's amazing how people interpret things differently. There's so many terrific reasons to cite our sources, to look at sources in a new and, and a more accurate way. Tell us what your class, it's called Source Documentation 101. What are you going to cover? What are we going to walk out of class with that uh, we really need in order to be an excellent genealogist? Well, in the class, I'm going to show you how to uh, how to cite your sources. We're going to have exercises and their handouts, and we provide information on how to cite your sources in the leading genealogy software. Not only do you learn how to cite your sources based on Elizabeth Schoen Mills's books, but you learn how to apply the information you've learned in your genealogy software. And therefore, it's hands-on information that you can use. Lots of my students come away from the class saying that they were afraid to take the class in the beginning because they thought it would be more than they could handle because they knew that source documentation was important, but they thought it would be too much for them to learn. And they came away from the class uh, with a lot of knowledge that they weren't aware of. And they they knew how to do the job because they knew the job was important. Mm-hmm. And they had collected all of these sources, but they didn't know what to do with them. And now they know exactly what to do with them. Yeah. And that's key because while it can look like a lot of work up front, oh, it's 10 times work more if we wait and try and do this five and 10 years later and realize we have a whole rat's nest of information to kind of untangle. Well, terrific. This has, I think, been a great reinforcement for all of us to make sure we are making this a good, solid habit. It's something that we commit to in terms of our research, and the class is going to give us great resources for doing it even better. Thank you so much, Charlotte, for joining us today. Oh, you're very welcome, Lisa Louise. Well, as we wrap up this September 2012 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast, we've been talking about diagnostic genealogy. Let's check in at the publisher's desk with Allison Dolan. Hi, Allison. Hi, Lisa. We've had some great interviews this episode, and I know that you've got um, a, a nice list of resources that are really going to back us up on all this diagnostic genealogy. Tell us about them. Sure. Well, um, we heard from Sharon Carmack a little bit earlier about her diagnostic uh, genealogy article that's coming up in the October-November issue of Family Tree Magazine. And that whole issue actually has a section on how to research like a pro, and we go into other tactics besides Sharon's that um, professionals and seasoned genealogists use, not just when they're stuck, but also to help them avoid running up against an unnecessary brick wall in the first place. And who wouldn't like to avoid running up a brick against a brick wall, right? Absolutely. 
Well, one of the really um, other other really great articles is by Sunny Morton, and she talks about the genealogical proof standard, which on the surface might sound a little bit scary or maybe a little bit boring, but um, really what she does is she explains how there are five steps that you can use this as a genealogical GPS that will guide your search. And by making sure that you get those fundamentals right, you can make sure that you will avoid those brick walls. Oh, and that is time well spent, don't you think? It's laying that foundation. Absolutely. It's things like, you know, documenting your sources and analyzing evidence and and, um, items of that nature. And I wanted to make sure that everybody knows about... um, a resource that we have through shopfamilytree.com that's a really great um, supplement to that article by Sunny. And it's um, Elizabeth Schoen Mills is a pretty well-known genealogist, and um, she wrote the books literally on the subject of <laughs> documenting sources. And all of those items are available through our store. Um, it's the evidence series. There's um, evidence, citation, and analysis Um, as well as Evidence Explained, which is a much longer, in-depth resource. Um, And both of those are available. Definitely worth checking out. If not, by purchasing them, go to your library and, and look them up. Yeah, that's a one that you really need on your bookshelf, I think, because it's one that you're you always go back to. Um, so, you know, and there's so many new types of evidence coming out, and we need to know, oh, how do I record that in a consistent way so this makes sense a hundred years down the road, right? Exactly, not just for yourself, which is really important. Yeah. Because how do you know where to look if you can't really keep track of where you've already been? Um, but also, if other people pick up your research and want to, um, you know, follow what you've done, that the source documentation really provides the roadmap for them to be able to understand what you've looked at and how reliable your research really is. And I love the um, the Family Tree Problem Solver. It's by Marsha Hoffman Rising. Talk about that one because that's a oh, great Oh, yeah. Book. That's another one that I think everybody should have on their bookshelf or on their iPad if you yeah. um, <laughs> like eBooks. Um, that one is probably one of our best sellers. And it really kind of goes into um, the, the tried and true tactics for tracing elusive ancestors is the tagline. And it goes in, in depth into topics like how to overcome the burn courthouse and how, how to change your research before 1850 when those census records only record people as tick marks. And here's a topic that I think is really, really valuable for everybody is separating people with the same name in the same place. Mm-hmm. You know, the John Smiths in the same county, that, that's a really <laughs> tough one. And um, there's lots of um, good advice from Marsha on how to work through those problems. Awesome. Okay, we've got a great checklist. We've got Sharon Carmack's um, article. We've got Sonny Morton's genealogical GPS guide, which is great. And of course, the tried and true Elizabeth Schoen Mills evidence and evidence, evidence explained. And, of course, The Family Tree Problem Solver by Marsha Hoffman Rising. Boy, that is a great list of resources for diagnostic genealogy. Thank you so much, Allison. Appreciate it. We'll talk to you next month. Okay, talk to you then. Thanks so much for joining me for the September 2012 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast, the monthly show from America's number one genealogy magazine. Here are a couple of action items for you until we meet here again next month. First, be sure and visit the Genealogy Insider blog for all the latest genealogy news on a daily basis. You will find that at blog.familytreemagazine.com slash insider. 
Next, head on over to FamilyTreeMagazine.com slash podcast to find the show notes for this episode. They'll include all the information and website links for everything that we covered on today's episode, including FamilyTreeDNA.com website, the Documentation 101 class information, and everything else we talked about on the episode. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and I invite you to visit me at my website, genealogygems.com, where you can listen to my free podcasts, the Genealogy Gems podcast, and Family History, Genealogy Made Easy. And both of those shows are also available free through iTunes. So until next time, have fun climbing your family tree. 